All right, good evening. Welcome back to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Uh, my name is Kyle Bird. I am your co-host for the night. I'm Matt Parmley. And here we are again. Um, we are going to talk about Half Human. Um, but before we get into that, um, let's introduce our special guest, um, who uh, is only here because uh, we wanted. We had something else that we did with him tonight, um, and we basically uh, held him hostage to stay with us and talk about uh, this this movie. Um, so we have uh, our, our our friend Patrick Galvin here. Say hello. Woo. Hello. Hello, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, so Patrick, um, Matt and I have known you for, for quite a few years now. And, um, of course you're one of the, the co-founders of the Kaiju Masterclass virtual convention. Um, that's probably where our listeners might maybe know you the most from. Um, but, uh, I think this might go up before, I don't know. I don't know which episode we record tonight is going to go out first. So just, uh, where, where else might people know you from here? Uh, sure. Well, I've written a large number of articles for places like uh, Toho Kingdom, uh, Sci-Fi.com, uh, Our Culture Magazine, uh, Offscreen.com. I've contributed some essays to uh, John Lee May's The Lost Films fanzine. Uh, largely done a lot of writing about you know Japanese cinema and including and especially about you know Kaijuega. So there you go. well, don't forget your book. Are. Plug your book. And and uh, <laughs> yes, and I also I also also uh, as of. You know, some as of a uh, summer 2022, I uh, published my uh, first book. It's called uh, Ruan Ling Yu: Her Life and Career. It's about it's the story of a uh, Ch- Chinese uh, film star who was active in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, sadly, uh, ended her life when she was only 24 years old. The book chronicles uh, her rise to fame, uh, her career, and also documents the uh, the story of her industry and the story of China in the early 20th century. There's a lot of concurrent stories that are running simultaneously, which I think makes for a very compelling story, which was, you know, one of my reasons for wanting to tell her story. All right. Yeah. We're, we're trying to, we're trying to move some copies for you here. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, as I'm sure anyone listening, uh, knows, um, yes, we were talking about half human, uh, 1955, <coughs> excuse me. Um, so, uh, there are very few of the Toho science fiction monster movies that we have not talked about on this podcast, this being one of them. I think we got to get around to Gorath, and I think I think after that we've we've talked about all the major ones. So feel free to explore our backlog of, of, of episodes if you haven't. Um, uh, half human, uh, Matt and I originally decided to do this because we were like, well, there's not a whole lot of Christmassy stuff you can do. And we were like, oh, abominable snowman, snow, winter, Christmas. Okay, let's do it. Um, but then, uh, I think the newer movie EK boys, which takes place around Christmas is going to be our Christmas episode. And so we were like, okay, but then watching this in preparation for this podcast, they say this movie takes place at New Year's. So uh, I guess this is sort of our New Year's episode, I guess, maybe. Anyway, Half Human is uh, 1955, um, a Shiro Honda movie. Um, so this is the second monster movie that Toho made. You know, there was Godzilla. So this comes between Godzilla 
and Rodan. And um, unfortunately, uh, the movie is is uh, not the easiest to see. Um, for many years, the only uh, way you could watch it was the American version, which is completely butchered, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit momentarily. Um, maybe the worst Americanization of an old Japanese genre movie. Um, but uh, that's all we had for a very long time because the Japanese version is under a self-imposed studio ban because of a the controversial depiction of the um, uh, the Burakuman people, um, who are an indigenous group in Japan. And yeah, when you watch the movie, it's it's not uh, the coolest how they're portrayed. Um, so uh, you know, similar to how you know Disney will not release Song of the South. Um, because they don't want to deal with the baggage of the problems that it, that movie comes with. Um, uh, I am of the opinion that it should be okay to release this stuff. It should be okay to talk about it. You know, just put a disclaimer on it, like how, you know, um, Warner Brothers did with some of the old Looney Tunes cartoons that had offensive elements, um, Stuff like how, uh, you know, Gone with the Wind now has a lot of supplemental uh, things you can learn about, you know, why parts of it are problematic or controversial. I, I don't think trying to erase something is is helpful to anybody. And, um, you know, if there's problematic art, we should be able to see it and talk about the problematic parts of it. That's how I feel. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I'm rambling. Um <laughs> I don't know. I mean, how do, I mean, I, I guess, I guess that's a good place to really start. I mean, how do you guys feel about stuff like this, where there is like a pretty, some pretty, you know, offensive stuff in it, and you know, the company, you know, the corporate side is a little like, I don't know, but I, I don't know. I mean, what do you guys think? I think that there's a responsibility to educate people that. Should that you know, if you're gonna put it out, put it out. But you know, I mean, as long as you have some information that can you know help people who are watching it, I mean, either deal with it if they find it offensive, or talk about why it wasn't okay, or something like that. I mean, I don't know. Where do you guys land on this element of of uh, problematic art and the people who own it? I mean, I guess being too afraid to do anything with it. I'll let our esteemed guest, the Galvanator, go first. <laughs> Galvatron. Uh, Galvatron, <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm always uncomfortable with the idea of censorship and, you know, withdrawing a film and suppressing it from release, whether it's, you know, forcibly or by whoever owns its personal choice. Um, so I've always found it unfortunate that Half Human has been for so long, you know, suppressed by its own studio, you know, and you know, not being given like a proper home release. Um, yes, there there's definitely things about the film that even in its day was pretty problematic and offensive. And yes, that should be acknowledged, absolutely. And I'm not I'm not saying we should we shouldn't we shouldn't talk about that or that we shouldn't acknowledge that. But yeah, I'm of the same mind as you, uh, Bird, in that I think that, you know, 
you know, it's a part of, it's a part of history and we can learn from that. And, you know, it should be made available, of course, with, you know, now that we, with the, uh, the disclaimer and the knowledge that, you know, Hey, you know, there's things about this, about this artwork that are not necessarily, you know, PC and, you know, they reflect, they reflect a major social issue that, you know, is in its own, in still in some ways very prevalent today. And we should be, we should acknowledge that, but I don't think that it's worth, you know, suppressing a work of art from ever from being seen again. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I've always found it unfortunate that the movie is, uh, has been restrained such as it is. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I look at these movies where they have these instances of like, Eesh, that was in poor taste or like, wow, that's pretty offensive as opportunities to learn more. Mm-hmm. And yep. I don't know how else to view it. Like, I feel like just not talking about it or pretending it didn't, it doesn't exist. Uh, like the, you know, even like all the ultra seven episode that's banned. Like, right. I, I feel like there's stuff to learn from those things. So, yeah. And, and especially with the case with half human, I mean, we're, we're going to get into the real life stuff about it, but, um, I wouldn't even know about the Burakuman, who they are, how they've been oppressed. I wouldn't even know about them at all as an American who, you know, I don't go out and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm busy. It's not that I don't want to, I don't go out and just like learn random pieces of different countries' histories. That would be great if I had the time and (laughs) and bandwidth to do that. But I wouldn't even know about this, um, if not for this movie and, and the controversy surrounding it. So, so that is like, there is a positive that can come from it. And, and as like the black guy in the room, I'll say, I think Disney should put out Song of the South. I mean, it's okay with now in the age of special features. I mean, even streaming services have special features on movies now. Like, put it out there, start a discussion, talk about why it's not okay that this happened, and present the work for people. And and that's kind of what I advocate. And um. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, Song of the South, I mean, there's elements of that movie that have seeped into our pop culture, like Disney's Splash Mountain Ride, which is now finally in 2022, removing elements of that movie. But it's like, you know, let's talk about this. And I, I think that in the US and in Japan, and very much in Japan, you know, the whole, you know, idea of corporate embarrassment is is a big deal. And it's, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things where, yeah, I mean, some people are going to get cancel happy and say, oh, you know, they're putting this out. But, I mean, just have the education with it. Um, I talked about how, like, uh, the guy who runs Synapse Films, um, who is local here, you know, I, I got to interview him on my old podcast, If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It. And they, they put out tri- – they're, they're the ones that put out Triumph of the Will. And I asked, like, you know, how did you – what made you do that? And he, and, and he had said, uh, Don, the guy that runs the company said, you know, we had the opportunity and we thought really carefully about it. And we said, um, you know, if we're going to do this, we should include a lot of bonus content. We should get commentaries from, you know, um, Holocaust victims, you know, survivors, things like that. And it's like, yeah, that's the right idea, you know, and, and, you know, that it should be available to help educate. Um, anyway, so half human, AKA, uh, 
beast snow beast man snowman aka uh snow i don't know there's all kinds of variations on abominable snowman in how the japanese title is translated but for simplicity's sake we're gonna go with the good old american title of half human um and this is about a yeti living in the mountains um and uh this movie kind of uh uh came out of a sort of a miniature Yeti mania in the 50s. So, Matt, why don't you just tell us a little bit about um, the impetus of the movie there and, you know, how, how um, you know, the, the, the movie came together behind the scenes. Uh, Yeti mania. All right. Uh, so interest in the abominable snowman sparked uh, when British explorer Eric uh, Shipton photographed a large footprint in 1951. Um, of course, internationally publicized expedition followed in 1954. And then Half Human is released in the middle of, of a trend in, of somewhere films, including Snow Creature, 1954, uh, Hammer Films, Abominable Snowman, 1957. And of course, Japan itself had, you know, we have folk tales of a creature called the, uh, the Hibagan, uh, who roamed mountains in the uh, Chikugo region. And then a Honda, a sure Honda was attached to direct half human before Godzilla raids again was greenlit, um, which is why he did not return to actually direct that film. And then the story treatment was written for, by uh, Shigeru Kayama, and uh, which was then turned into a screenplay by Takeo Murata. And Kayama drew from a pair of stories he'd written in 1947 and 48 called The Revenge of Oren. I'm going to butcher this bird, but <laughs> Revenge of Orin Pandic and Fate of Orin Pandic, which is uh, about an anthropologist who discovers a race of eight men in the um, Sumatra uh, rainforest. So this actually was shot on location in the Japanese Alps. Um, Honda actually filmed the location footage first. And then when he got back, uh, Subarai was actually working on Godzilla Raids again. So Half Human was put on pause. And then Honda made another uh, made the film The Mother and Son. Um, after he was done with that, Subaraya was free again, and uh, filming of the second half of Half Human commenced. So, so that, that 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 gives you an idea of just how uh, like how, 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 how yeah how fast <laughs> these guys worked. You know, down and dirty, right to business. Um, okay, I'm gonna go uh, do the location shooting for this movie in the Alps, and then uh, oh. Uh, I came back and the special effects director is shooting a different movie. So like the second, like the next day. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, I, I, okay. So now I guess, okay, sure. I'll go do a whole other movie while he's doing that. And then when I come back, I'll finish this one. Uh, and you know, that is just, that, that is insane. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah. Half human has, um, I mean, uh, uh, Kayama wrote the, uh, the story treatment for, um, the original Godzilla, and I think he wrote the novelization of 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 that uh, movie as well. And Murata, um, you know, he worked also on the original Godzilla. Rodan, he worked on uh, Rodan. Um, so some of the very early, early Toho Tokusatsu. Um, uh, this was kind of like the writing team there. Um, so yeah, Half Human. Um, so it's a miracle, really, that we can even see the Japanese version of this. Um, and really, I mean, we're we're kind of blessed that all of the big studio band um, tokusatsu things have kind of leaked out. Um, so, I mean, you have this, you have Prophecies of Nostradamus, 
and the band Ultra Seven episode, um, the latter two of those three uh, band, you know, to prevent any kind of outcry because of, uh, you know, people who uh, have survived um, the atomic bombings and, you know, radiation sickness could find those offensive. Um, and then this. And um, uh, this movie and Prophecies of Nostradamus, from what I understand, is... Um, you know, when Toho were, were really reissuing a lot of these titles on um, VHS, Laserdisc, um, these were two movies that, you know, they had a, 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 at one point had, had intended to release. And uh, just this is just how crazy the world we live in is. <laughs> um, but uh, those releases were canceled, obviously, because, you know, hey, this is sensitive stuff and we had a change of heart. Somewhere, somehow, someone uh, had smuggled the uh, copy of of these movies out, and they, over after many years, started um, circulating um, on you know in in the bootleg circuit, and eventually those started circulating in the American bootleg circuit, which then eventually had them fan subbed, and now with the internet. There they are. So kind of like how, you know, it's, it's the, you know, the, that Roger Corman Fantastic Four movie that was made, which, I mean, that's a whole other can of worms, but that movie was never, it was made and was never even supposed to be released, unbeknownst to the cast and crew. Um, and yet, because some employee smuggled it out, it's very easy to find now. Um, and same thing with these. And so... Um, but yeah, it is true that there is a lot of lost media out there, including weird stuff that you would never think is lost. Like one of my recent, like, oh my God, I'm starting to get old moments was like looking at like some TV shows that, you know, collectors and aficionados of television are like, oh, so these episodes we can't find. And it's like shows that I remember airing. And it's like, I'm sure they exist in studio vaults, but because they haven't been released anywhere for whatever reason those episodes just have not surfaced online because of who knows why. Um, so yeah, it is really a, a kind of a miracle that we can even watch this thing. Um, so, um, you know, I guess, I guess I'll give a pretty, you know, I mean, the plot is straightforward, so I'll, I'll just do a quick plot breakdown. We, we can kind of give our thoughts on the movie. Um, so uh, we uh, we have a weird framing device where a reporter is in like in a lodge and he's asking these college students these questions, and that's at the beginning and the end, and then the rest is like in flashbacks. But I, it's a, it's weird because that that framing device is like pointless. It's just a guy like, oh, tell me the story. Okay, bye. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> that's exactly but, what happens. So so essentially, there's these. Um, these college kids on a skiing trip and, um, uh, they, uh, they are supposed to meet with, um, one of their friends and, uh, it turns out they, uh, are, they go to a, a, a different place and they're like, okay, well there's a blizzard here. So they're separated from, so group A here and group B are separated and, you know, there's a big blizzard that's keeping them in for the night. And then, um, when they try to, you know, call them and reach out, they are, you know, they just hear stuff like screaming over the phone. And so they go and visit the next day after the blizzard and they find um, that, uh, you know, um, 
their friends are 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 either dead or missing. And um, you have uh, Akira. Ta- you have some familiar faces in the cast, of course, notably Akira Takarada and um, um, Momiko Hochi from the original Godzilla. And um, uh, so Momiko Kochi and Akira Takarada are probably between Kochi and Takarada. That's probably the closest we have to main characters. Although the movie, I don't know. This we'll talk about how just weirdly structured this movie is and how weird it's it is because there really aren't central characters as the movie goes on, but that's those two Kochi and Takarada are the closest we have there. Um, and so, uh, so, um, they go home and then, uh, they return to the area with a scientist, um, helping them, uh, because they see these footprints and they're like, Oh, this looks like, you know, it's not a bear. Bears are hibernating. What is this? So they come back with a scientist who wants to know what that is, and they want to find their friends. Um, and uh, due to some uh, some some crazy circumstances, Akira Takarada um, is separated from the group um, when he goes and chases something in the woods, and he like falls into a ditch, and um, uh, he uh, is kind of nursed back to health by Chika, who is. A uh, member of this Burakuman village, um, kind-hearted woman uh, who is like, "Oh, here's a guy. You know, I, I'm gonna go save him." And then the rest of her village. Uh, so she's like this beautiful woman, and here's where we get into the problematic aspect. Her, um, she takes him home, and literally everyone else in this village is like a deformed, like freak. You know, you got a guy like you got people m- with eyes missing. Um, and, and I mean, the way some of the extras and stuff are acting is very like not okay. Like there's like they, the, the these these people like act like they're like these in inbred freaks. Like you know they act like people with like a uh, you know a uh, mental handicap. You know um, they they really it's it's a problematic <laughs> reflection of these people. And we'll talk about who the Burakuman are and, and, and stuff in a moment. Um, anyway, uh, you know, the elder of the village is like, how can you bring in this outsider? And, you know, he, he, you know, beats her and is just like an awful person. And, uh, you know, she's just the, she's, she's of course, nor like the, she, she is not, uh, uh, she doesn't have the physical, um, uh, I guess, disfiguration of the rest of the tribe so you know the movie's like oh of course the good-natured one is like the you know the hot chick and everyone else is like a weird (laughs) mutant or something um and and so uh so they so their little village they actually worship the uh this yeti uh in the mountains as kind of uh their deity and it turns out the yeti also has uh, a little baby son um uh we don't know what happened to mom. Um, and so uh, now also at the lodge um, uh, that our main characters go to, um, uh, you know, for their their big expedition, the, the they are uh, overheard by some um, some sleazy circus guys who um, have heard about the uh, 
the abominable snowman in the area, and they they want to capture the snowman and, of course, take him to their circus, and that's where you get, you know, obviously this is more of, uh, you know, these guys um, doing their own quote-unquote homage to King Kong, and, you know, Subaraya gets to, you know, play with that because, you know, he was a Kong freak. Um, and uh, so they they end up following them, and they're like, well, let's follow these uh, college kids and the scientist and the, you know, once they are close and know where the creature is, that's when we get the jump on them, get ahead of them, capture the creature, take him back and exploit him and get rich. Ha ha ha. And um, so that's their evil plan. And of course, um, uh, eventually um, that does happen. They they end up uh, discovering the baby and using the baby as bait to lure the uh, the adult snowman out and they capture him the baby actually attempts to rescue his father, uh, at which point um, the, there's an ugly car crash that kills a bunch of the this uh, promoter's uh, cohorts, and um, he uh, shoots and kills the baby, which drives the adult into a murderous rage, and he throws the man down a ravine or down a mountain or whatever, and then he, he just completely tears the, the, the village apart, and then um, our characters basically tail the Yeti into um, into the cave where it uh, he meets his uh, very sad end, and that is half-human. Um, so, uh, I mean, this is a movie that, you know, uh, probably it was only within the last decade or so that um, the Japanese version surfaced complete with a fan sub that we were able to watch um so i remember when i first found that and watched it but um just to uh save myself some breath here and uh spare our listeners because i've been talking a lot i i kind of want to defer to you guys and get an idea of um <laughs> you know i mean how uh you know uh, i guess your general takeaways of of, of this movie there's a lot of uh, skiing down slopes and then more skiing down slopes and then trekking in the woods. Oh, there, and... there's also walking in the snow. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, 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 there's also some parts where they walk up some mountains. And through some caves, too. Right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> the movie's like 90, it's like 97 minutes long or something, and there's a good chunk that is wholly unnecessary of just that i think the first uh the first act is really frustrating i do think it gets much better in the back half and i do think there's some interesting and maybe even hilarious moments like the 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 car crash and the the dude getting thrown down the ravine which is like just this really bad prop that falls for like 10 yeah. seconds it's a dummy that <laughs> it's a dummy that the camera lingers on a little more than it probably should it's yeah. like it just uh, but like there, I, I do think there's some, I do think there's some fun to be had. I do think that the, 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 the half human snowman, uh, does have some real pathos and like, you can feel the, like when there's that moment where, ba you know, he's embracing his dead child and like, you can feel the pain and anguish that he's going through. And it's like, okay, there, there's some stuff to be had in this movie. Um, 
I think I don't think it's a, a good movie by any means, but uh, I do think there's some things that I definitely enjoyed. I just wish like there was less walking around for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know how. In my case. Oh, I was just gonna. Go I was just gonna really quickly say. Um, I don't know how much they spent on the location shooting or what, but it's like they really wanted you to see. The... Just like an advertisement for that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're like, we need to make sure people go. Here. They really wanted to you to see the where they were shooting. Um, but yeah, Patrick, go ahead. Uh, there are individual things about this film that I think are absolutely wonderful. You know, the monster snowman is a, is a very sympathetic character. Great suit too. Yeah. The suit is great. The performance is very good. Um, And I think Honda delivers some very effective individual moments with the monster, especially Um, that said, the movie is hampered by, as you guys have said, odd structuring. Uh, For me, the, the last, act the last um the climax of the film isn't as climactic as it probably should be i get what they're going for but doesn't doesn't really feel all that suspenseful to me and it's also hampered by the fact that uh with the minor exception of chica the uh unusually beautiful barakamine in a village of hideously deformed barakamine with the minor exception of her there's no way you can really latch onto hence there's no (laughs) there's, there's no intensity i mean you have the generic kind of protagonist. Yeah, it, you, generic... you like get tricked into thinking it's going to be about them, but then it's not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have your damsel in distress, and you have a scientist who mouth, who just mouths exposition, and you have some uh, one-dimensional villains, and uh, there's not much to really... Uh, you know, I know we joke about this all the time, but like you know, there really is more to a kaiju film than just you know the monsters and the special effects. You know, Without a good human story to go along with it, you know, it's hard to really get invested in it dramatically. And... Uh, yeah, the movie is just uh, it's it's about it's about as thin as the paper it was written on, and uh, yeah. that uh, that hurts it significantly. So, uh, should I change my pronoun- pronunciation to barakamine? Not whatever you just said. Okay, barakamine, barakamine. That's where that's that's where I'm going with. Anyway, I yeah, I mean, I I mean, I feel like we're all kind of in agreement on this one then because as I mean, I, I'm with you guys, and I remember, you know, this movie was always like, this is the one you can't see ever, and it was like, damn, I would really like to check that out, and I, I, I remember even seeking out, like, the, not that, it was never, like, around in video stores or on TV, but I remember eBay getting the the uh, the VHS of the American version and just being like, oh my god, that was miserable, I really wish I could see, like, the real version of this. And then I remember finally re- when it hit that uh, gray market, um, I guess now in the 2000s, like the torrent circuit, the fan sub circuit. And I was like, holy shit. Like I'm when this download is finished, I'm going to have half human. That is so cool. And then I watched it and it's like, oh, they're walking and oh, <laughs> they're walking again. There's some jazzy music playing. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, they're still. Oh, that's the you know the mountains. They're really nice. Oh, actually, wait a minute. What, they're still walking. What is this? Oh, there's a waterfall. Cool. I'm walking too. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and then and then around like a half hour, that's when it sunk. That like, oh, this movie is actually, 
you know, I was really hoping for that, like, oh, that Lost movie, it, it, I saw it and it was a masterpiece. And I, that's when it hit me, like, okay, this is, this isn't going to be that. And, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's how I felt about it then. I think I've watched it, between then and this recent viewing, I, I watched it one other time. So I've probably seen it maybe three times in total, and it's just you know, like like Patrick said, I there are some parts things about it I really really actually love quite a bit, but it's just like this is as far as the I've, I've you know I, I've seen all of Honda's science fiction and horror movies because that's all we've had for a long time, and then you know I, I have had a chance to see some of his dramas that have been fan subbed, the war movies that have been fan subbed. And uh, this is down there for me with Varane is like his weakest, his just his weakest movie, um, in my opinion. I, I just the the complaints that you guys have, you know, I'm gonna echo. I mean, the first half hour could be trimmed by like, like it feels 90%. like yeah, it could be it could be trimmed almost entirely. Because so much of it is just people walking. Um, I mean, at an hour and 37 or so minutes, I mean, you could probably get this down to a really lean hour and 20 minutes or so with some better editing. And um, even then, it would still be all weird. Um, but yeah, the structure of the movie doesn't work. I mean, as the movie goes on, it loses focus of the human characters, and so there's really not much story that we have um, beyond, you know, this monster gets pissed that his offspring is dies and then meets a tragic end. Um, but I, I, I mean, the, the, the suits are great. I mean, I can only imagine King Kong versus Godzilla. If, if Kong looked half as good as, as the, the <laughs> Yeti in this, um, uh, there's some real pathos to, um, to the Yeti and uh, his child that works really well. There's some really good atmosphere. Um, the There's some good horror sequences that have a lot of really good atmosphere and really, um, really good kind of old school black and white kind of horror feel like, um, you know, the, uh, the Yeti, you know, reaching his hand through the tent and then coming back and, and taking um, Momoko Kochi. Um, those are really great sequences. Um, you know, the, the monster is great, but it's just, you know, I, I don't know. The, the, the script just isn't there. I mean, and there's some stuff that I, I just don't get. Like, um, so after, you know, the, uh, the, the rest of the village finds out that Akira Takarada has been nursed back to health by, um, by Chika, they, like, tie him up and hang him off a cliff. But, like, why? <laughs> It's so it's made clear that good guy. well it's made clear that the 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 abominable snowman is like a pretty chill guy you know I mean he he just wants to be left alone and you know when he goes out to hunt and eat he um you know he you know he eats other animals when he kills someone it's it, it it's typically like in self defense I I think um. And so, you know, he, he sees Akira Takarada, like, he's just rolling by with, you know, this deer that he killed. He's about to go and, you know, have have dinner with his kid, and he sees Akira Takarada hanging off a cliff, and he's like, what what the hell is happening? And he just, like, he pulls the rope up, and he, he frees him, and he's like, here you go. 
I don't know what's going on with you, but there you go. You're you're free now. So I so like like I have no idea why they did that. <laughs> Are they, like <laughs> why they just hung this dude <laughs> off a cliff for no reason. Um. So yeah, there's my stuff impression like, was that the, uh, the the birds were supposed to eat him or something like that. Is that yeah, that's. <laughs> that's what that, I was, I was thinking that when I was watching it, but I was like, that's weird. <laughs> like, <laughs> would that kill him or would he eventually, like, because birds don't, like, just eat a whole person. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's very bizarre. Um, so, yeah, the whole thing just seems like it's undercooked. And obviously, I mean, we talked about the hustle and bustle of, Toho at, at the time, you know, I mean, you got a Godzilla sequel filming here. Oh, so we're going to wait and you go film a whole other movie, then come back here, have it all done in a week, you know, whatever. So, I mean, you know, I don't know if it's just a casualty of stuff like that, but it just feels like someone maybe like, I don't, it feels like something where not even a whole script was written. Like it's just like a story outline that was made into a movie. Uh, so yeah, I, I, by the end, you know, there's nothing really said about these characters. Uh, you know, I mean, the movie p- kind of just forgets about them for like a half hour. And then at the very end, they're like, oh, yeah, there's like people here too." Um, you know, and and yeah, I mean, I guess I, I can see where Patrick's going with the ending being anticlimactic. But um, I don't know. There's a good sense of uh, there's an operatic kind of pathos to, um, you know, uh, the creature and um and Chica basically perishing in this sulfur pit at the end that, I don't know, carries a little bit of a, an emotional heft, but, um, yeah, the, the movie itself is just like, it's so thin and, you know, there's really not much to say about it because it doesn't really work. And, and a lot of that is, goes down to the editing and the pacing and just really strange structure of, of, you know, the script. Like, it, it really doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, we do get some, but I, I mean, the, 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 on the Subaraya end, I mean, we do get some really cool monster stuff. I mean, the, uh, the, the snowman wrecking the village is all great. Um, there, you know, Subaraya, again, we, we, talked about how, you know, he's obsessed with Kong and Willis O'Brien and stop motion. Like there's even a scene at the end where he, he gets to do like a little stop motion thing of the, the creature walking up, you know, some, some rocks with the girl. And so, um, but yeah, I don't know. The, the, this movie doesn't really hold together. I don't think. Yeah, I can't, I can't, uh, I'm not quite as negative. I can't, I don't put it in, in the same, uh, low realm as Varan. Um, for, because I do, because there are like, there are moments and scenes that I do like very much. Whereas Varan to me is just like, you know, pretty music and not much else. <laughs> for, yeah. Varan uh, is basically the music and the suit. Yeah, yeah. That's basically it. Whereas, whereas this has a little bit of, a little bit of meat to chew on. So I, I don't put it down that low, but this is definitely, not one of Honda's better films. If, if it was not for the, uh, the controversy surrounding it and the, uh, obscurity of it, you know, this film would not get half the attention that it's gotten over the years. Yeah. And, and I, 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 you know, I, you know, I don't pretend to speak for other people, but I knew, no, I do know some people that have watched it and been like, Oh, 
like that's so cool i get to see this and like oh that was cool and it's like well maybe watch it again and see how you feel because <laughs> you know that that rush of like getting your hands on it is pretty exciting but it's like oh yeah i i, I totally get it. i mean what one of my one of my favorite uh you know Lost films I'd love to see rediscovered is a uh, 1917 Cleopatra film, which I'm sure if I saw it would probably bore me to death. But just the fact that it's that it's just lost and presumed gone forever, like you know, I would I would still have that rush of excitement if I found it someday. So yeah, like dude, as, I, I totally get uh, it. SRS is putting out that Korean uh, Wang Magui uh, movie finally, yeah. and mm-hmm. it's like I'm similar mm-hmm. about that. It's like realistically, this movie's probably a piece of crap. But it's super cool that I'm finally going to be able to see it, and and so yeah, there is a rush of excitement when there when when there is stuff like that. Um, but yeah, this is one where like, you know, I mean, even these actors who are like these great Toho actors we've seen and 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 so many other things like they they just don't like have much to do. Mm-hmm. Um, just Takara just falls down, just falls constantly. Yeah. <laughs> He falls down a gorge. He gets he gets thrown into another gorge. He gets hung off a cliff. Uh, that's basically all he does. He just falls yeah. down on stuff. <laughs> oh, would you rather be him or like Chica? Because she gets like abused constantly and then gets thrown into the sulfur pit. So like... <laughs> yeah, she she probably gets the worst end of the stick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She 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 has it pretty rough. Um. So uh, but she's the only person in the movie you can even care even a little bit about. Yeah. That's true, though. I mean, yeah, that she's, is true. Yeah, she's she's the closest to feeling like a actual character in this movie. Um, yeah. Have both of you seen the American version? Yes, uh, I have to confess, I did not. Re- <laughs> I did. I did not rewatch it because I refused to rewatch it. But I do remember seeing it. <laughs> uh, I so, so yeah. I, I I suffered through that for my the second time ever. I have a confession. You didn't finish it, did you? I didn't finish it. <laughs> <laughs> it's only an well. Let's. I mean, well, let's be realistic, okay. though. I I can't really too hour... much. It's only an hour, and it's all stuff you've seen condensed and with John Carradine narration narrating over it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> excuse me. So that is a very bizarre. Like I look at the other Americanizations. And there's ones that work. I think the 54 Godzilla works. And then there's ones that don't quite work. Like Godzilla 84 doesn't work, in my opinion. But it is pretty watchable, and I get what they're going for. Speaking of Iran, that's another movie that took a pretty subpar Japanese movie and made it into one of the worst, even worse. (laughs) But (laughs) as unbearable as I find the Americanization of Varan... I at least understand why it is the way it is. I have no idea what they were thinking with this. I look, I watched not much of this movie and I was, I was trying to, I got busy at work and blah, blah, blah. But then I realized I I didn't want to suffer through an hour long movie that felt like a 12 hour long movie because that's what the first like 15 minutes feel like, especially if you've already seen it. And it's just like the guy telling you exactly what's happening on screen. I don't understand at all. I mean, obviously, (laughs) I get the... It's one of those uh, re-edits that's uh, shorter, but somehow still slower at the same time. It's like he's shorter, but it's way longer. He's reading the studio notes like out loud to you. Like the guy that's editing, he's like reading the editor's notes like, oh, we're going to have this scene do this now. And he's like, wait a second. 
this is my script. Yeah, so, I mean, anyone that hasn't watched this, um, so, you know, like many of these uh, Americanizations, we, we want a big actress, so they get John Carradine. Um, and so their way of adapting this for an American audience is you get John Carradine, put him in a room with two other guys, and he's like, oh, uh, I have this report about this abominable snowman, and these other guys are like, oh, ha-ha, that's crazy. And he's like, no, let me tell you about it. And then it literally just flashes back. He's like, oh, well, there are these uh, college kids, and this happened, and then this happened, and then that happened. And it's literally him narrating over footage of the Japanese movie. And then it cuts back every now and then to him and his colleagues in his office. And, you know, I don't know, one of his colleagues will be like, huh, that didn't happen. And he'll be like, oh, no, it's true. And then, like, he'll take out, like, a piece of hair from the Yeti and be like, okay, look, look, look in the microscope. And then, and then like his other guy, like his, his friend will be like, Oh, it's not like anything I've ever seen. And then they'll go back to more stuff and he'll start telling the story again and narrating over the Japanese footage. And then, um, and then at one point he's like, uh, Oh, I got a surprise for you guys. And then he whips out the corpse <laughs> of the baby, which is actually Toho did ship them the actual, um, suit for the baby uh uh yeti um and you know they talk to this guy oh the autopsy did this there's a bullet wound here this is what happened and so then you know they gawk at the 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 baby uh creature's body and then it goes back into telling us oh well this is how the story ends and then it's like okay that's it so it's like they hyper condense the japanese version throw a really pointless framing device with John Carradine around it and have him drunkenly read read a synopsis of the movie, <laughs> basically. And that is the American version. Um, uh, it was directed by Kenneth G. Crane, um, who uh, I, don't, I, I couldn't find much information about this guy, but... Um, I think, you know, he only directed a few movies. Um, he did uh, Monster from Green Hell, which is like the giant insect movie. Or no, is that Monster from Green Hell? That is Monster from Green Hell. And then he did um, uh, The Manster, which is probably the thing that most people might know him from. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know if it's just a coincidence that this is an adaptation of a Japanese movie. But The Manster is... Um, a horror movie that he did that he filmed in Japan with a lot of Amer with a mix of American and Japanese crew with a lot of Japanese actors that you'd recognize from a lot mm -hmm. of the Toho stuff. But, um, uh, so yeah, I, I don't know. Someone decided to punish him and, um, <laughs> make him do this. And for the life of me, I cannot begin to understand why they felt, I mean, I, I understand, especially back then, why, these Americanizations happen. Not that I necessarily agree with it, but I get it. And most of them I can look at and see, okay, I can see why this was the approach they took. I am at a loss <laughs> for words when it comes to half human. Yeah. I never thought that I'd see a, a U.S. cut of one of these films that sank lower than the uh, U.S. version of Iran. <laughs> oh yeah. But I have. <laughs> You know, like Veron, like I'll give the U.S. version of Veron this. It fixed a plot hole in Honda's in Honda's film. It explained why Veron comes out of nowhere all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, that's you know? true. It's because so there were those. I'll give, I'll give it, I'll give it points yeah. for that. Uh, but this film is just, you know, it's a, 
you you watch it and you and you honestly wonder what were they thinking. Honestly. I don't get it. I mean, <laughs> the distributor had to be like super afraid of any kind of any single like line of. They they must have been super afraid of like the English dub process. I don't know what it was. You know, I mean, Godzilla made a bunch of money and that dubbed a bunch of the dialogue and did a fairly tasteful American spin on it. And this is just like, we can't even bother, be bothered to think about that. Let's just show up, basically show a high. It's basically John Carradine narrating a highlight reel of Half Human, which base, if you haven't seen the Japanese version based on what we said about it, that might sound a little bit appealing to you. Like, oh, I can just watch the highlight reel. No, 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 no. You are absolutely <laughs> wrong, my friend. That is not how the American version works. Um, don't do that. <laughs> Neither version is particularly good, but go for the less bad version of the Japanese version if you're going to bother with it. Because I get, <laughs> I get where, oh, I can just watch the highlights and that'll be it. No, that is not how this works. The American version is shorter and somehow paced even worse than the already horribly paced Japanese version. Just don't, don't do it to yourself, my friends. It is not worth it. I, I know I didn't, and <laughs> I don't feel bad at all. <laughs> I'm um, so yeah, the the American version is is awful. Um, so, uh, Barakamine is that yes? Okay, so the Barakamine. Um, uh, so let let's let's actually get some kind of substance out of this podcast and talk about that. You know, obviously we mentioned it's controversial. It's a hypersensitive topic. And so uh, who, so, I mean, now I, I want to tell people about who are these people? Why is, is why, like, you know, why is, why is this controversial? So um, again, like anytime we do a kind of, a, I guess, quote unquote, history lesson on this podcast, you know, we're just giving you a very broad nuts and bolts version of it. If you are interested and want to learn more, I urge people to hit the internet because the internet, believe it or not, can be more than tweets and memes and scrolling endlessly on social media. It is a very valuable education tool. So anything I'm about to say, take if you want, I urge people take that as a, as a, a, a springboard. Go hit the internet, learn more. Um, but just to give that crash course, because, um, you know, we are a podcast and we're here to talk about a monster movie. I mean, I'm sure the subject of Barakamine can be uh, its own podcast that could run for years because there's so much history and it goes back so far and there's so much about it. But um, just to give people kind of an overview. So who are these people? So uh, the Barakamine are um, essentially descendants of um, people that were part of the feudal outcasts um uh in Japan um considered part of a a low um a low class society um so they were part of um uh they were people that fell out of the Edo period in Japan you know this is like way back 1800 stuff um they had a caste a caste system in place um which is basically a social class that is determined by where you are born and, you know, who your relatives are, your parents, your ancestors. 
And so if you are born in a certain place to certain people, you are not part of a higher class of society um, just because of that. And, and so um, uh, the Burak, the the Burak, God damn it. The Burakamine. <laughs> yes, the Burakamine were, um, they fell outside of the, uh, the typical four main divisions of that. Um, and uh, so they were, just based on where they were born and their ancestors, they were a lower class of society, um, uh, would, you know, be in, um, you know, uh, small villages and, um, they, they, they they would have to take, you know, these dirty, low paying jobs, um, is work to get by. Um, so they'd work in graveyards, landfills, anything that was seen as unclean, unappealing is typically, um, what they would be doing. Um, and that, uh, that, um, uh, caste division, including the status, the official status of, um, uh, uh, Burakumin. Is that right? I don't know why I'm struggling uh, so much with this. It's 1 a.m. people. Burakumin. <laughs> Burakumin. God. Okay. I will get there it from you, here on out. Every but, time you're going to say it, Patrick needs to come in and say it. Okay. Every single. <laughs> uh, no, I got this. I got this. It's late, people. Um, so, uh, Barakamine, uh, that the official social status of that and that entire um, uh, class division was abolished in 1869 during the Meiji Restoration of Japan in an official capacity. So, even though, uh, so, and obviously we're still talking about it, it's still a hot topic, and 1950 and even today is still something that we are talking about. So obviously that abolishment of that status in official capacity really didn't mean anything. It just meant that, um, you know, you, you couldn't say that this system existed, but the stigma around them and, uh, the opportunities that they were not given due to it. Um, and the, 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 poor stereotypes and everything still affected them after the uh, abolishment of that system. And that leaks into, uh, um, you know, the 1900s and now into the, into the 2000s. And it, so the roots of this discrimination are, they go back and it's something that we're still dealing with today. Um, it's, it's weird to talk about because there's not really quite a good American counterpart. And I've, I've heard people compare them to indigenous groups here. Um, uh, you know, the, the indigenous groups of the Appalachian mountains and stuff. And that you, you're, you're getting there a little bit, but, uh, but the fact is this is less a kind of racism, um, or, uh, you know, based on, it, it, than it is, it is a classism, um, of these people who generationally have been poor due to the discrimination and lack of opportunities they're given because of that. So there's really not a good American comparison point I can make, um, because it is, it is a, it, it, it's a classism that I would say works very much like outright racism does. Um, you could say maybe the way that we think about our, 
you know, what, what, what we think about our quote unquote, um, uh, uh, white trash com- communities, you know, people, uh, who, uh, live off welfare or in trailer parks and, you know, the negative stereotypes that come with that. But even that isn't quite the same. Um, but it is a similar kind of classism that, uh, has been placed upon them and they are, have been generationally poor because of that. Um, and all because at a certain point they were placed outside of, um, um, this this uh, division because of where they're born, who their parents are, and things like that. So even after that system is abolished, those stere- harmful stereotypes and um, uh, and societal damage still carries over even today. Um, so it is a taboo topic, and I mean the term um, barakumine isn't really even spoken much, you know, in Japan. You know, it's it's just not something that is talked about. Um, and in in the forties, even, um, you know, schools would, I mean, teachers would be okay to just intentionally ignore students um, that belong to the, the those communities. I mean, okay, um, the students of Baraku is what they would say. You know, okay, place them at the end of the class. You know, and I mean, there's teachers, there's reports of you know people who grew up, you know, be, having a hard time learning disabilities because they weren't educated well, because there's like, okay, you know what, you kids sit in the back of the class and you know what, because of who you are, don't even bother paying attention. Like, I'm not going, teachers saying stuff like this, teachers literally bullying children because of this. Um, and I mean, there have been efforts to um, help uh, eradicate the discrimination, integrate them into mainstream society better. Um, in uh, March of 1922, Japan's National Lovers Association, or the Zenkoku Suahesha, which I probably just said all messed up, but um, they were established to eradicate that kind of discrimination. Um, they were one of Japan's first modern human rights groups. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about in the movie, they're, they're depicted as being disfigured and all freakish and and, and you know, these essentially a Japanese like, Oh, look at these gross, like inbred hillbillies almost, um, in real life, they look no different than, you know, your typical Japanese. Um, now to, to, to kind of, um, uh, quickly sidebar into the movies controversy, just to elaborate a little bit about it. I mean, upon its initial release, it really wasn't that controversial, um, and, uh, in the late sixties, early seventies, it was said to have some TV airings. Um, and, uh, even today, I mean, very rarely, you know, there's a Japanese screening somewhere. I'm not sure how involved Toho themselves are in those. I mean, here, I mean, independent theaters will throw up a bootleg of something and call it a day as long as, you know, they don't make too big a fuss out of it. But I know that there was one in 2001, and there was another one in uh, 2020 who a friend of ours, I think mutually, and, uh, you know, someone Patrick knows from Toho Kingdom, um, Nicholas Driscoll, went to one in 2020 in Japan on a double feature with Varan. Ugh, talk about a, uh, <laughs> talk about a, a rough uh, day at the movies. Um, in Toho, you know, they haven't acknowledged the uh, controversy publicly. They just internally were like, oh, we thought about releasing this on video, and we're not, but they haven't actually said anything about it. Um, 
but the movie has been uh, under a self-imposed band uh, ban to avoid backlash, and a lot of that is from groups. There are, you know, uh, the Baraku Liberation League, um, different human rights groups, um, and uh, one thing that really freaked out um, studios and networks. Uh, in 1973, there was a broadcast of Ozu's movie, um, Floating Weeds, which depicts a uh, uh, an uncouth marriage between a, a girl and a Baraku boy. And um, that airing resulted in a scandal that really threw a lot of uh, backlash and public outcry against the TV network. Um, so, you know, publicly, publicly humiliating, but public humiliation, basically the equivalent of now uh, Twitter canceling. You know, people were pissed, uh, uh, you know, at this. And since the um, offensive references to the group are often under self-censorship from studios, again, similar to how Prophecies of Nostradamus and the One Ultra 7 episode and other things um, are considered offensive to survivors of, um, you know, the atomic bombings. Um, Japan, their, their tendency to avoid that corporate embarrassment has prevented those things from coming out. Um, uh, so that is kind of context as to why everyone's like, oh, we, you know, let's not go there and risk this. Um, but getting back to, um, the, the Baraku, um, rights movements, um, there was, um, the law on special measures for Dawa projects. Um, so that lasted from 1969, um, to, uh, 2002, um, a lot of this information I found on uh, humanrights.org. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just going to kind of read directly off of um, some of their uh, their reporting, some of their notes. Um, but basically, that was a measure that was made to strengthen um, Barack Amin acceptance in mainstream society. Um, these improvements uh, only... So I'm reading pretty much directly from their website at this point. Um these uh, improvements only addressed one aspect of the disadvantages facing the Burakumi, Burakumi, Burak, um, There you go. <laughs> I, yep, I saved myself. Um, namely, but main, namely during the um, when that law was active, it was naming, uh, namely uh, helping them um, with things like the poor infrastructure and housing in their communities. And um, it was only later in the life of that uh, law that. Um, things were kind of starting to tackle more uh, deeply the discrimination um, that that was being experienced in areas such as private employment and even marriages. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, there were things where, um, for example, uh, there was a report on the BBC that I found um, talking about, like I said, um, the workplace, um, private employment, I mean, in the mid-70s, there was a Baraku rights group that discovered um, a document that was 330 pages long. Of It was a handwritten list of Baraku names and common locations, you know, of uh, addresses, you know, places of birth. Um, and it was secretly being sold to companies that um, were, you know, and, and, it, and that list was being used to filter applicants. So if you had an, a Baraku name, if you were born in a place um, in a Baraku community, you were, you don't worry about getting a job. You're not getting one. Um, and, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, these big Japanese firms were using that list to screen these applicants. 
Um, and, uh, and because of that, you know, again, we're seeing this prejudice that is carried over all based on where you're born, who your parents are, that, um, publicly was quote unquote, you know, uh, abolished in the 1800s and still well into the late 1900s is keeping people from getting jobs. And, and, and not only that, so that is, that is where, because of the lack of opportunities these people were given, they had to do other things. Um, a big one uh, that has furthered the negative stereotype of these people is Yakuza connections. A lot of Yakuza were um, uh, uh, Barakumin people. And and that is because, or Baraku people, I, I guess is more grammatically correct or whatever. But um, And that is because it's like, okay, I can't get a job anywhere how else can I feed my family? How else can I make a living? Yakuza. That's where you, that's where a lot of these people would go. A huge portion of Yakuza for a while were, um, from these communities. And it's because it's like, Hey, I can't get a job anywhere else. I need to do something. I need to live. And, uh, unfortunately that's where they couldn't get a job because of these bad stereotypes and bad prejudice. They had to do something that, uh, just, all that did was further the negative stereotypes. So it's like these people really couldn't win. Um, more recent example, again, this is from a, a report that I found on BBC. So like I said, online resources are there. I encourage you to go and, and seek them out if any of this stuff is um, of interest. But um, uh, 2009, there was a public outcry when Google Earth um, used publicly available historical maps of Tokyo and Osaka, and those uh, they pinpointed the location of uh, Bara um, uh, 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 Baraku villages um, from feudal, feudal times. This, this dragged up a whole bunch more of these contentious issues of prejudice and profiling. And so these are still things that even even like in recent years, um, we're seeing and, and, um, uh, Japan's, um, way of dealing with it, um, has been, uh, not the greatest either, um, because they, it's similar, I would say it's similar to how, um, you have here people that combat the ideas of critical race theory being taught in schools, whereas even the best faith reading of that falls down to um, if we don't acknowledge it, if we don't acknowledge the problem or that the problem exists, eventually, because no one will be educated on it, it will no longer exist. And I mean, anyone with a functioning brain can tell you why that isn't realistic, why that won't work. And the real solution is to educate people on these minority groups, their background, the oppression that they've faced, and be like, you know, hey, let's celebrate your culture and realize the harm that society has done to you. You know, the answer to that is not, you know, it's, it's the same problem with people who say, oh, I don't see color, I don't see race. Um... No, 
acknowledge that there's other cultures and people that are different and that it's okay and that it's great that we have so many people with different backgrounds. Let's celebrate that, but let's also acknowledge and learn from the pain that we've put these people through. Um, so the, the Japanese education system really has not um, done the best job in, 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 handling, in, in handling this. Um, uh, and so, um, so, uh, the, that, that law, um, that I mentioned, the, uh, the law on special measures for DAWA projects, it expired in 2002. It was not renewed. Um, but 14 years after that was eliminated in 2016, um, uh, there was again. So now, I, now I'm, I have information that I found on my, um, uh, minorityrights.org. Um, but uh, after all that, um, the Act on the Promotion of the Elimination of Baraku Discrimination—that's a mouthful—that uh, was enforced in 2016, um, and that was to acknowledge the fact that um, this discrimination is based on social status hierarchy built in the process of historical development of the Japanese society, and it's. Um, discrimination that still occurs on a daily basis. Um, and uh, before that, in 2017, there was a survey conducted um, uh, on, uh, you know, to comprehend the conditions around it. Um, and, uh, you know, it saw that there, there, um, there were uh, not a few people who searched sensitive information relating to those districts, the Baraku districts online, with an in, in, uh, discriminatory intention. Um, but the discrimination has not been um, eliminated. Um, there have been a lot of struggles um, now in the social media age of, um, you know, uh, people, um, you know, just online hate speech um, and things like that. So, I mean, this is a struggle that is um, ongoing still. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, just, uh, you know, it, it's still an uphill battle um, for a lot of these people, even though Japanese society and educational systems um, are not really uh, emphasizing it. And like we said um, uh, when we did an, an episode that I'm not sure which one is going to land first, but we did an, just did an episode on the Common Rider Black Sun um, where... Um, you know, we we had we delved into a lot of social issues, and uh, it's like you know, these are these are issues that exist in modern day Japan. They're not going anywhere, and they they kind of need to be acknowledged. Um, now, that being said, you know, I mentioned the Ozu film that caused a public outcry, and obviously the this movie's depiction of um of uh. Uh, the Baraku people, but uh, Patrick, I know that you have some notes on um, some, I guess, more uh, more favorable representations in Japanese media, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, <clears throat> around the turn of the 20th century, I think it was in 1906, uh, there was a guy named uh, Tosun Shimazaki who wrote a novel called The Broken Commandment, which was very favorable about uh, the Barakamine. And actually, it's been adapted into a film three times. Uh, the first one predates Honda's film. Uh, it was made as in a film called Apostasy by uh, uh, Keisuke Kinoshita and stars Ryo Ikebe as a, uh, a teacher who has a Baraku background and is trying to hide it because he knows of the discrimination that he will face if it's uh, revealed, including, of course, you know, expulsion from his job. 
And uh, people who, know, who only know Ryo Ikibe from his uh, sleepwalking acting in, say, <laughs> Bound Outer Space, <laughs> I, this, this, is a, this is one film I would suggest list to you as an example of an opportunity <gasps> to see him really show off his acting chops because uh, he has a much meatier part to play and really gets into the role of the character very well. Um, Koni Chikawa, who made um, Princess from the Moon, remade it in the 60s, and I've not seen it because it's brand new, but apparently in uh, this summer, 2022, uh, there was a third remake that came out in Japan. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, there's there's definitely been, you know, literature and films that, you know, have that before and Honda's time that have painted the Barack Amin and their struggles in a much more sympathetic light. So, uh, now... What was the title whether they, there? Whether they get, uh, well, the novel is called The Broken Commandment. The uh, Kenosha film is called Apostasy. And you can actually find this film on the Criterion channel. Okay, there you go. Um, all right, I, I kind of cut you. Did you have a, something else you were... No, that was basically, okay. I was just pointing out that you know, there's, been, there's been literature and media before and after uh, Honda's, Honda's film that has you know addressed this topic in a much more sensitive and appropriate manner. Now, whether it gets the uh, full attention in Japan that it's worthy of, I would probably venture a guess and say no, but at least it's out there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, the it, it is something that still happens. I mean, uh, you know, um, so that, that recent act um, that I mentioned from 2016, I mean, that, that was, you know, the government kind of tried, at least publicly being like, okay, we're going to take responsibility to try and combat this. Um uh, but like I said, I mean, it's still a struggle. They haven't really done anything legislature wise. Mm -hmm. Like, like on the common rider, black sun episode, we, we talked about, you know, different things that Japan has done or said, because like, you know, Japan, they say, you know, Oh, we, we're, you know, the, you know, they, they, you know, we we accept every everybody out you know outwardly, but then when you look at the the government and its treatment of minorities, it's like still in this to this day in Japan there is no legal ramifications for discriminating against someone on you know uh, race, religion, things like that. So it's it's one of those things where it's like, is this act for uh, that that from 2016 is like, is this just a public facing thing to make people? leave us alone or what? I mean, I know there, there are, according to minorityrights.org, there are, um, uh, critics of, of that act that say that, uh, you know, it, it really lacks any teeth because it doesn't outlaw the discrimination. And again, that is the problem is like, there needs to be something there, uh, you know, actions, um, that the, the law can, you know, have penalties for that. But here we are in 2022, I mean, officially, quote unquote, the uh, um, Brachamin status was done away with in the 1869. And this is still something we're dealing with, like just uh, not only Japan, but just any country and just humanity as a whole. We still have a lot of work to do, people. Um, but that is an interesting thing, because this lies in the very famously, you know, I think, in interviews he's given in the movies, you know, ha the, the very, um, accepting humanist, um, anti-racist love everybody, no matter who, where they come from pacifist Ishiro Honda. It is a very weird to see that. I mean, 
you know, his, he's still, him and, you know, his writing partners and producing partners are still people of their time. And so, you know, I mean, you look at stuff like Mothra or Varan and King Kong versus Godzilla, and there are problematic aspects to things like the natives and, and stuff like that, that isn't, you know, cool by today's standard. Um, but this is kind of another level and, um, uh, it is very strange to see it reflected in a Honda film. I don't know. I mean, where do you, I don't know. Where do you guys stand on like, what is up with that? I, I, I really don't like, I don't know. How do you guys wrestle with, with that? Well, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, the only, uh, again, it goes back to the fact that the only character we're talking about is the Baraku played by Chica. And it is kind of interesting that, you know, who is by far the most favorable, favorably depicted Baraku in the film. She's also the only one who looks completely normal. Yeah. And she also has like, you know, a, like a, like a fascination with uh Western civilization. So it's kind of, it almost, it almost seems like, you know, uh, yeah, Baraku are kind of, you know, filthy, but you know, the one, who actually is open minded enough to uh, be trusting of a uh, of a uh, quote unquote regular people? It looks like everybody else, so it's 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 kind of like a, like a skewered pre- presentation of them. You know, the the only one who's like you know quote unquote like us looks just like us, whereas everybody else is like hideously deformed. So it's very strange, um, and it 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 does seem to kind of like play into like you know what Honda's continued fascination with like you know rustic old-fashioned ways of life and the hustle and bustle of modern civilization you know we also saw this in uh his first dramatic feature uh the blue pearl right too. yep a much, a much better film oh that's a great <laughs> yeah that's a great movie yeah i mean yeah. find the blue pearl that that has been fan subbed it's really good um it's yeah. better than this yes <laughs> it's mar- markedly better and uh i and this is a, on a slightly different tangent but i also find it interesting that you know the one character we're talking about is probably played by the one actress we're talking about in this film too. That's a uh, Akemi Nagishi, uh, who was previously in Honda's uh, Feral Rabal, playing the uh, exotic island girl, and uh, yeah, she's still kind of like stuck in a phase in her career where that's basically her modus operandi, her her screen image. You know, she had uh, she become she was introduced to, to films in uh, Joseph von Sternberg's film uh, Anatahan in 1953 which was a Japanese-U.S. co-production shot in Japan, where she also played uh, an exotic woman, a Japanese straight on an island who takes on the exotic native girl kind of aesthetic, you know, who's very, you know, uh, uh, sexually promiscuous, very, uh, you know, flirtatious. And she's still definitely, like, still playing up this whole exotic nature, you know, two years later in Honda's film, you know, following, all, following as I mentioned earlier, the... Uh, exotic nature of her character in a uh, feral Rabal too. Um, but yeah, I just, I just find it kind of interesting that, you know, of all the Baraku characters who can be fairly depicted, the only one who is, is the one who looks just like, who looks just like quote unquote you and me. So uh, yeah, I, I can definitely see why the, the negative, there's ne- definitely negative sentiments towards this film and the way the characters are depicted. Um, and I'm not going to excuse it. Right. And I'm not going to uh, you not going to whitewash it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think historical relativism plays a factor perhaps. But uh yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, it's not flattering and it shouldn't be um brushed aside as no big deal. 
Yeah, uh, Matt, I don't know. How do you feel about the the ickier parts of this and just where it kind of sits with and, and seemingly kind of clashes with, you know, Honda's, what we know about him? Uh, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> like you know who I, I I kind of I kind of uh, alluded to this guy earlier. There's one particular like, not really an extra, but because he's always in the frame, and I think he might get a couple lines. There's one guy that is always around that is like laying the whole like. I, I mean, like I don't know how else to say it. Like he he this this actor is legitimately acting like he has like down syndrome or something like it's really gross. Yeah. There's some, there's always that thing about like, I don't know. You, you talk to a racist like grandfather from who's 80 or not. I mean like, but like you would, you, I don't know. I don't know how you parse out the, it's a product of their time with understanding now, like, Hey, this is really messed up. And I think Patrick hit it on the head. Like you can't, you can't excuse it and like pretend it doesn't happen. Um, and it's unfortunate that like understanding the history and the context and all the things that these people are facing, like, it's just, I'm, I don't know. It just feels gross. Like, I just, I just feel gross right now. Like, I don't know. How to yeah. Describe I, it. <laughs> excuse me. Um, yeah. It, it's one of those things where like, you know, everything Honda has said, I, you know, I believe him. I believe that he was this gentle human being who was very strongly anti-racist and uh, accepting of all, you know, all these people. But this is one where you really could, I mean, you know, he's not alive to defend himself, you know, but you, you really could nail all of that to this and say, how can you have these principles and make something like this. And, you know, I, I don't know that there's a, I don't know that he would have a excusable answer. I mean, I love Honda. I mean, I, he's my favorite director. I mean, I, I love, I love his, uh, you know, his philosophy on life, but I mean, you know, I got to call him out sometimes, but you know, and, and so I don't know. I, you know, he's not around to tell us, you know, this movie was never talked about, uh, in its day and because it's been banned, no one had a chance to talk to him about it. Again, here's where maybe suppressing it, you know, all you've done is like, you know, this guy isn't here to defend himself and say anything now. And uh, not that anything that he could say justifies it, but it would at least be beneficial to hear him explain it in his own words. Uh, and then, you know, if we feel like he's full of shit, we can say that, but we can't because this movie was suppressed. No one ever saw it, and no one ever got to talk to him about it and confront him with this very uncomfortable thing. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those things where there really is no answer. Um, uh, I, I, I mean, the worst faith reading that you can maybe give is maybe maybe he did have some kind of uh, thing where maybe he may have looked down on uh, either indigenous people or, or, or people of a lower societal class. Do I personally think that's true? No. Do I know it's true? Also no. <laughs> you know, so it, it, it's one of those things where it's just, you know, he's been well, he's been dead for a very long time and it's not something that we, we were ever able to, anyone was ever able to talk to him about. I think I do wonder too, like, 
studio system how much of this is like the script how much is other yeah, people right, and honda's right. just and he he's the guy directing what's given to him right yep. he, and i think where you see his best work in this movie is the humanism that that chica actually has and she's mm-hmm. the one character that actually like actually her in the um the, the abominable snowman the, the half human like they are both kind and it like you know, he saves Akira Takarada from apparently being pecked to death by birds, we think. We're not sure. <laughs> We're not sure. <laughs> right? But, like, he saves him from there. But, like, she's she saves Akira Takarada initially. She gets chastised and basically, like, they the narrative flips around where it makes the, uh, the Barracuman basically um, the bad guys in a way, right? Because they're, like, saying she's the problem because she's bringing the outsider in and, like, flips the narrative. She's the one that had... And, like, that to me was Honda's touch it was her character um yeah. i wonder if the fact that she looks like them was just sort of happenstance i don't know i mean i it's like, probably like i mean the truth is they probably want you know a beautiful actress that can just be eye candy there you go and whatever but and, and like um, i just I, which is I, the, the 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 image she was this actress was portraying at this time for sure yeah yeah, yeah. um yeah i mean it's one of those things where like did did Honda? I mean, everyone's complicated. Did he have certain prejudices? We don't know. I don't like I don't like Bird, but that's just because it's Bird. Yeah, so, yeah. Know. There you go. Um, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I we don't know, and we're never gonna know. So I mean, yeah. I mean, it might be very tempting for some people to who see this movie to be like, oh, you know, uh, can't you know cancel Honda? You know, he was a phony. Look at this movie with all this ugly stuff, and it's like. The truth is, we don't know. Uh, I, I, I think that whatever inexcusable hiccup caused this, I think there's a lot of evidence that I, I, I don't think it reflects his worldview, but I didn't know the guy. He's been dead since I was like eight <laughs> you know and he's not around for us to learn and so i mean it's one of those things where it's like it sucks but we have to just i mean my conclusion is that we we don't know we don't know that's it i think it's kind of comparable to see for example how native americans were portrayed in uh american movies for the longest time yeah. um yeah I, th- I think like you know a lot of americans like say of the the 40s the 50s and the 60s yeah they believe in man they believed in manifest destiny and things like that and uh probably thought that the taking of Native American land was a good thing. And that doesn't mean that this doesn't mean that they thought that the Native Americans should be wiped out or that they were like, you know, subhuman or whatever. But at the same time, they didn't really like, re- probably most of probably didn't raise questions about like, say, we're, we're, we're in films, Native Americans are portrayed as like, you know, drunks and kind of dimwitted and silly and whatnot. And uh, it's just something they, they just kind of like, you know, they just kind of accept that just as a product of the time, perhaps. Yeah. So, uh, it re- it reminds me of, um, People can look it up on YouTube. There's a funny skit. Uh, uh, the, what I always think of when I hear that is like, it's it's diet racism. It's like, well, <laughs> we don't believe in the eradication of, you know, this non-white group. But, uh, you know, the, you know uh, the colonizing and all that stuff, it was okay. You know, it's similar to like how, you know, just be, you know, it, it's what I always jokingly say, you know, when someone's like, I can't be racist, I have a black friend. It's like, well, Let's slow down, buddy. Um, but yeah, I, it, it is one of those things with, I mean, as far as Honda, I I have no choice but to look at m- the good that he's done and said. 
and you know it outweighs the harm that uh is in this movie but that being said you know just like i love the original king kong but i would never excuse its racism you know i can't let him off the hook here um and so it is it is kind of a, an uncomfortable thing but um you know we 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 can't go and yell at him for it now so <laughs> we're just left with and and really anyone that worked on this is dead again this would be a great thing that uh you know uh, akira takarada was probably the last person you would probably be able to ask about this and sadly he passed away before anyone could ask him you know um and i mean just think i you know i just think of how many times that guy's been interviewed and this movie never came up and it's like how like come on guys like that this this would be a, such a great thing that we could have asked him and you know he was like our last lifeline to a lot of this stuff so by the way, Takarada's in a, a much better film about uh, discrimination as well, uh, about, called uh, Whistle of the Heart, which is about uh, the plot against the Ainu, another minority group in Japan. And which which uh, uh, some people get confused and say this movie, de- it was Ainu mm-hmm. stuff, but nope, that is not true. Uh, this was uh, Barakumin all the way, although Ainu is a whole other can of worms. That's a, another indigenous mm-hmm. group that faces all kinds of uh, crazy discrimination and stuff. Um, yes, but, uh, but yeah, so if you read about half human and it says I knew, then I don't know, that's, that's a mistake. Um, but, but yeah, it's true that like, you know, a lot, a lot of the, uh, the issues in the film definitely don't seem to have been brought up when they were new. Like even like, uh, say, uh, like Donald Ritchie and Joseph Anderson's, uh, book, the Japanese film, which, which was published in 1959 around the time that the monster boom was happening. Like they, they mentioned half human, but very fleetingly, it just as like, you know, another monster picture that came along after Godzilla. It's not mentioned as like, you no, know, in terms of the, uh, the subject matter and how it's depicted. So even like this Western outside perspective is not giving this issue at this, at this time, any attention. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, I mean, it's really too bad. Takarada couldn't talk about that. I mean, I've been in those audiences where he's been at a convention with my hand raised, choose me, choose me. I want to ask you about last war. <laughs> half human, all this other stuff. And then, you know, I don't know, some schmuck gets picked and he's like, who would win? Destroy our, <laughs> you know, camera. It's like, oh, well, there goes that opportunity. Um, anyway, yeah, I mean, when, 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 while these people are here, let's, let's, let's be thoughtful and, and try to, you know, ask them the questions that, you know, can actually change the discourse. I mean, if we just had one person to talk about this movie at length, you know, we would get a better idea of all this stuff. But, you know, here we are, uh, just left with no answers for some things. Um, okay, so that's half human. I mean, how many grossly offensive portraits of a, a, min- of a, a centuries oppressed minority group Oh my God. <laughs> do, do Bird you just got us canceled. <laughs> so yes, how many grossly offensive portraits of a, a centuries-long oh oppressed minority group um, do we want to give this out of five? Uh, I'll go first. I'm going to give this uh, two and a half falling body props uh, for 25 seconds down the mountainside. It's the first like third of it is bad. I did enjoy the back half of it and i i think you know yeah it starts to cook a little bit more in that back yeah half. it's not something i know that i it's not something i think i'll revisit but like it's i've seen far worse 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm there with you at a two and a half. Um, uh, people walking in the snow for two minutes <laughs> at a time. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'm I am very glad. I'm very grateful that we um, have access to the film. I don't think it's great. I think that there's some nasty stuff in it that, uh, you know, Honda should, should not have done or, you know, the powers that be at Toho, whoever I think, you know, I get the damaging reputation, you know, the, the, I get it. I get it. Um, but I am glad that uh, it's out there. You know, it really is a blessing whenever we can see an Ashiro Honda movie that, exists and we haven't seen before even one as sloppy as this as problematic as it is i'm glad that we can watch it and talk about it and discuss it and learn from it um and there are sequences and are elements of it that i think are quite good um, but as a whole it, it it doesn't quite hold together for me so i am at a two and a half um that being said um you know i mean people are interested it's out there i encourage people that think it might sound interesting to check it out and you know use it as a learning opportunity to learn about these people that are still facing hardship um uh but yeah i mean i'm i it's it's not a great movie my score is pretty low but i am glad that um we we can watch it because like i said it's a miracle that some some schmuck at toho snuck this out and here we are across the world in the year 2022 watching this thing and you know that is a minor miracle so i'm happy for that patrick mm. what about you uh i'm kind of wavering between two and a half and being a little generous and maybe giving it perhaps a low a very low three out of five perhaps uh really just because just for the character of chica for uh, the, the pictures of the monsters and for some fine moments where you do see some of honda's better direction for sure um, you know, I, th I think, for example, the the creature's first appearance, where they, uh, it's Momokokochi, you know, sleeping in a tent in a moment of vulnerability that we can all yep. relate to. That's a good. And scene, then you see yeah. like the shadow. You see the shadow cross up over the uh, the inside of the tent. The camera zooms in on her to show her vulnerability. Then to the gap in the tent, where you finally see the monster. Like those moments where you're like, okay, you know, I can see a Honda in here, you know, doing his Honda on his A game at this moment right here and now and then. And I guess there are for me enough of those moments where I'm like, okay, you know what? This is not a film that I'm going to revisit terribly often, but uh, whenever I do watch it, yeah, I'll watch it for these fine individual qualities and these fine individual little moments. Um, yeah. For, it's not, for me, it's not one of his worst. I, I still think that something like Veron is incomparably, you know, harder <laughs> to sit through. Uh, but uh, yeah, make no mistake this is not this is not a uh one of honda's uh shining moments and if it was not for the uh the controversy and the uh unflattering depiction of, of a of a minority group you know this film would not receive nearly as much attention and interest as it has received over the years as is it's fine enough but uh it's not it's not a, it's not a lost classic by any means yeah yep um all right so there you go Half human people um, don't watch the American version. Just don't. I would give that like. Yeah. I mean that. <coughs> excuse me. I mean that would be like a. Um, That's a half star. A, like, a, a, yeah. If I I'm on Letterboxd where it doesn't allow me to do a zero, 
it's a half star, but it's like it's really like one of those things where I what's even that half star for? They shipped a cool looking baby Yeti suit out to have John Carradine and some guys gawk at it for five minutes. I mean, come on, it's yeah, not great. It's a it's a it's a half star. And and, it, and it, it, uh, <laughs> we didn't mention this, but uh, um, uh, Sato did the score, and it, I think it's actually a decent score. The American version erases yeah. most of that, but anyway. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's half human people. Um, uh, Patrick, thank you again for joining us. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you. It was great to be here. Yeah, and um, you know, hopefully it won't take us uh, like six years to, to, to get you on here next time. Um, but yeah, uh, thank you everyone at home for listening, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll uh, talk to you soon. All right, bye. Thank you for listening to the Kaiju Transmissions podcast. Please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. Make sure to subscribe for all the latest episodes. You can also check us out on Twitter at KT underscore podcast. You can check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Kaiju Transmissions. And you can email us at kaijutransmissions at gmail.com if you have any questions or comments. And we will see you next time.